loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm welcoming Steve Disselhorst. Steve's the founder of a Bay Area coaching and consulting firm that focuses on leadership development and diversity, equity, and inclusion with both individuals and organizations. He's the author of Determined to be Dad, which chronicles his journey to create his LGBTQ family through adoption. Just came out in 2020. Steve's a co-active trained coach focusing on an integrated personal and professional leadership development approach. He helps clients become emotionally aware and authentic in their lives and work. He also provides consulting on diversity, equity, and inclusion in organizations that aspire to create people-first cultures that promote trust, honesty, and a deep caring for employees, customers, and the end user. Steve serves on the board of directors of, for our Family Coalition and as a San Mateo County, California, LGBTQ commissioner. He and his husband are the proud parents of two children through adoption, and we'll be talking a lot about that today. Welcome, Steve. Well, uh, good, good afternoon. Excited to be here. Glad to have you. Uh, as I was telling you right before we started, your, your book um, brought back uh, times for me um, way before this when I was becoming a parent and thinking about doing that as a lesbian which was rarer then for LGBTQ people to have kids. Uh, yeah. That was that was 1980. Yes. But there were but there were a few people ahead of me, which which I needed desperately. Um, <laughs> yes. So like you, um, all, uh, when I came out, um, I thought that meant no children. And. Uh, actually my mother that's what she cried about for two weeks yeah um you'll never have children you'll never be married um she lived to be wrong thank goodness <laughs> yeah but um i was interested that you started the book largely chronicling coming out yes uh even the book though the book is of course mostly about your journey the back the backdrop is mostly about your journey to be a parent, but they're kind of inextricable, aren't they? Yeah, they are. And I, I think, um, so when I, when I sat down to write the book, um, I, you know, I wanted to focus, uh, really my goal with the book is really to help uh, other queer uh, people as well as other people that are interested in creating families through non-traditional means I really wanted to help them with um, some of the pra practical aspects of it, but also help them with um, kind of understanding the uh, emotional, um, psychological journey that you go through. Um, and when I started to write those things down, I was like, there's so much that happened before that that got me to the place of actually being able to say I could do it, that I could be a parent, I could be a father, I could be... Um, 
something that I didn't think when I came out that I could do. And so I thought it was important to share um, all of that backdrop because I think a lot of, you know, in this day and age, we think that, um, you know, LGBTQ young people uh, have it so much easier than you or I did, but I think it's very, um, depends on where you live. We know that in red states, it's still very difficult for um, LGBTQ people to live uh, uh, authentic lives. And, and I think much, much more, uh, much more difficult for LGBTQ youth to live those lives. And so I really wanted to um, tell my story of where I was um, and how it was challenging for me and how that those outside messages and really the heteronormative culture that we lived in really taught me that who I was was not acceptable within within the society and culture. And I was what I what was striking me as I was reading is um, actually how much it hadn't changed that that you still had to go through uh, something very similar. Your children are still children. Mine are grown up. But yeah. um, that first there's the self doubt. Do I have a one thing that I remember struggling with was, do I have a right yep. to bring a child into a hard circumstance? Yeah. Uh, you know, and uh, kind of starting with self-doubt, but then having to project in the world uh, utter confidence. Yeah. Well, uh, <laughs> and I really noticed that in what you were talking about as well, kind of having to be the super committed 100% parent. Yeah. You know, so no one would uh, come at you with doubt. Yep. Yeah, and I think that's uh, part of the reason why it took me until I was in my 40s to actually do it because I had, you know, many years of, you know, I came out um, in the, around 20 years old, 19 or 20. I came out, started to come out to myself, but really it was more around 22 to 24 that I really started to come out publicly. And, um, you know, there were many years where I had a lot of doubts about my identity um, and really had doubt about speaking up in the world for what I wanted and needed and, and really who I was. And then, um, and also, you know, I came out um, in the Bay Area and, and moved here in 1990 and, um, you know, came out when AIDS was in the full swing, right? And, um, coming out at that time was such a um, scary prospect, right? It was so, Absolutely. especially for gay men um, living in uh, the metropolitan areas in the United States where there were a high density of other gay men, there was just a lot of um, fear um, and misinformation. And there was also a lot of, you know, obviously in the Bay Area, there was a huge amount of um, uh, good information, educated people that were providing information, but there was also this draw to the bigger culture, the overall culture, which was had all these very um, harmful messages uh, about gay men and AIDS, and um, and so that was really was really you know it was really scary, right? Like when mm, you're absolutely when you're um, when you're uh, I think when you're heterosexual going out on a date and. Um, you know, uh, back in the day, at least for my friends in high school and college, they weren't, when they were starting to be sexual, they weren't thinking about, oh my God, there's, there's really, um, 
this consequence of death, right? Right, were, life they, and death prospects. Yeah, yeah, they were worried about, <laughs> you know, protect protection, right? So that they weren't, you know, ending up with children that they didn't want, but they weren't worried about, um, you know, a death in the way that uh, it was for a lot of gay men coming out at that time. It might be a good time for you to share a little bit from the book, uh, maybe the part about, you know, leaving for California and the fear in, in that, because um, that's kind of what you're describing. Yeah, sure. I'd love to. So um, my book is titled Determined to be Dad, and um, chapter six uh, is titled Identity Crisis. Um, my oldest brother, Bill, was living in Northern California in San Ramon, a Bay Area suburb of San Francisco. He called and invited me to come to visit for the summer. This excursion was a great way to run away from my budding relationship with Dan and get away from my family and friends. I felt shame, fear, and a lack of control over these attractions. I left my parents' home in May of 1990 at 22 years old. I drove a 1975 Saab coupe that my parents' next door neighbor gave to me for the adventure. Raz was an eccentric man who grew up in Northern California and attended Berkeley in the 60s. He encouraged me to leave the suburbs of Chicago and explore the West. I planned to move to California for the summer. I was trying to escape from my past and what was happening inside of me. Summer turned into fall, fall turned into winter, winter turned into spring, and spring into summer again. And that cycle kept on for about five years. I kept creating excuses to avoid returning home. I was too ashamed to ask for what I needed to be happy. I was terrified of being alone for the rest of my life. I was terrified of losing everyone that I loved. I was terrified of losing the life I knew. I was terrified of the unknown. Similarly, um, I moved to the Bay Area when I was 18, took a trip out here, and I did go back and get my stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I, never, I never returned. <laughs> so I, uh, I relate to that experience. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> And it and it was you know it wasn't a completely welcoming place to be, but uh, even at that time, if if anywhere was going to be if you were going to find your people anywhere, it was yeah. the Bay Area. Yeah. You know, there were certainly lots of lots of people coming out in a very strident and political way. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, how long did it take you to sort of? sort through the uh you know inner, think, inner objections i guess yeah i mean i think it you know i think it was so i think it took me you know a good i would say uh, seven to ten years to really get to a place of real comfort um it was a long process for me i mean i um you know i think it was really um you know i was able to find community um I was able to create a network of friends, um, but I struggled with um, I struggled with dating once I came out, um, and I really, um, I really it was hard. That was a hard thing for me, and I think a lot of that had to do with, um, you know, as queer queer people as we grow up from a very young age. Back in the day, it's changing now, so I want to preface that. But for me, I was born in 1967, so in the 70s. 
as children, we were very much, uh, you know, taught um, to act like boys and to have behaviors um, related to what we, we thought was gender appropriate. And I, you know, I wanted to explore different things. I went through a phase of wanting to dress like a woman and, um, and I, I felt like I had to hide all of that. I had to hide all that exploration because it wasn't okay. And it, it, it really impacted my ability to trust. Um, and it really impacted my ability to be, um, really open and honest with people. So I think that's why it took me a while um, to really get comfortable because I had to pull back those layers of years of um, messages to myself, uh, you know, that I couldn't trust people. Yeah. Uh, I know that religion played a part in that for you. Yeah. Um, being raised Catholic and, and pretty devout, it seems to me, uh, your family was. Yes. Yes. Uh, I was raised, my father was a minister. Yeah. So I related somewhat (laughs) to that as well. (laughs) Although he, my mother had a harder time accepting than he did. He was, he was a pretty, uh, a pretty true Christian in that way. (laughs) You know, don't cast stones kind of, kind of Christian. (laughs) Yeah. But um, the fear though, on the one hand, that means be a truthful person. To be yeah. raised in a faith means, yes. Uh, at least my parents' faith was all about truth. Yes. But then coming out was all about an unpreferable thing that was the truth. Yes. And I wonder if that resonates for you, uh, the, the kind of collision between those two imperatives and how hard it is to put them together. Yeah, I mean, I think... Um... I don't know if you were, you are Episcopal or, um, American Baptist, American Baptist. Okay. Mm-hmm. So for, for, I mean, for the, you know, Roman Catholic church, I mean, we're still, um, in 2020, we're still, you know, in a place where there's very hard right elements of the Roman Catholic church that are completely condemning. And, um, you know, 30 years ago, 20 years ago, it was, it was just not really acceptable. So I think for me, my father, you know, he, um, both of my parents were, you know, devout Catholics. My father went to um, a seminary high school and then went on to the seminary, was going to become a priest. Um, And he um, left after about a year in the priesthood, but he was very, um, I mean, he was, uh, he was very devoted to the church. And so you know, when I came out to both of my parents, it was um, my mother was much more uh, accepting in the moment. My father was had a very difficult time with it, but he um, he had a very good priest friend uh, who he was in co- uh, contact with, who was very progressive, and he reached out to that friend, and they I think they had lunch or they got together. Or this was someone that would come to our house, you know, once every six months or a year, and. They had, um, his name was John Kane. They'd had lunch and, you know, John explained to my dad that, you know, I was created in God's image and that, um, you know, that, that I was intended to be the way I was and that it was the church teaching that was really problematic. And so my dad then became very accepting. Um, and well, he didn't. How fortuitous that friendship was. 
It was great. He was a great. I mean, was, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, yeah, it was great. I mean, um, it was, you know, I think the idea of, um, you know, gay, you know, gay sex was hard for my dad to really like put his, you know, get his mind around it. Um, and um, I think that was really hard for him. But I, I, I think, you know, once, once I was in a relationship, my, my current husband and we were together, you know, Initially, it was, you know, I think it was hard for them to accept someone. But once they got to know that person, um, get, got to know my, my, my husband, they, you know, they, he was part of the family. He is part of the family. And um, they, you know, accepted him and loved him like they were, you know, he was their, their own son. But, it, you know, it, that didn't happen until, you know, the early 2000s, really. Right. And, you know, I've... Um... I I get in trouble with some people because I talk about coming out as a loss experience, uh, and I'm I, it's also the best thing ever, right? Find a finding experience. You're finding yourself. Yeah. yeah. That process of everyone being unhappy about it. Yeah. Uh, even even when they later learn and grow, which is yeah. wonderful. My parents did. Your parents did. Yeah. Um, there's still that loss of being able to say, this is who I am and having people go, that's yay. That's wonderful. You know, or um, kind of to have that, um, that happy experience is something very, very few people have even now. Yeah. I mean, I think for me, you know, I, I, I have a lot of friends that are gay and they recognize their, um, their, different identity at much earlier ages they i mean they really um they knew from you know five or seven or eight or ten years old that they 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 covered it they fit in but they knew very early on for me i was very far in the closet like i i didn't even allow myself to have those feelings until really until i was like in my senior year of college and so for me it was it was really shedding 20 years of my life. It was really about, you know, the loss of those 20 years of living as um, I was showing up as a heterosexual boy and then teenager and, you know, college student. I dated women. I tried to fit in. Um, and, and I did, I was successful at it. Like I could, I could pass really well. And, so, but that the passing is a, a you know a death to yourself, right? Over yeah. and over and over, and it's um, you know it's sort of self hurt, right? Like you're you're pleasing others by um, by doing what the world wants or what you think they want, and so uh, it was very it was really hard. That was really hard. Yeah. On the other side of the coin, um, I have noticed that. People who really thought deeply about coming out, which isn't all gay people, you know, right. LGBTQ people, but people that kind of went into the depths about it. Um, there's a way that um, then we know ourselves better in other areas, too. Yeah. Like there's there's no hiding places. Right. <laughs> we may as well just figure out who we are. And I, I, I'd like to, we have a break, break now, but I'd like to come back and just talk about how that actually in a way makes you brave enough to do something like have children when no one thinks you should, you know, yeah. <laughs> um, to, to do things in life that uh, maybe are not sanctioned, but yeah. are us, 
deeply yeah. us. So yeah. let's come back to that when we're when we're done with the break. Okay, great. Listeners, you can find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America. Um, please reach out. I love to hear from you about what touches you in the show, what you'd like to see more of, guests you think I ought to have. Um, there's also a link to my novel, An Ocean Between Them, which is in fact about a young uh, lesbian family and the problems they have with acceptance and etc. And to find Steve, you can go to stevedizzlehorst.com. It's S-T-E-V-E-D-I-S-S-E-L-H-O-R-S-T.com. Be back soon. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. What sets apart voiceamerica.tv from the other video content providers on the Internet? Choice and flexibility means that you can host your video content live or on demand on the main voiceamerica.tv channels through your own branded media player or your own private TV channel. We support multiple media formats, so all of your video content can be in one place. We offer a number of advertising and video packages. For more information, visit voiceamerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. Be sure to like the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel on Facebook. You'll find great health tips from the experts. Find out more about your favorite shows and talk back to our team. Search Voice America Health or click the like button under the player today. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Steve Disselhorst about his book, um, determined to be dad. And Steve, before the break, we were we were just about to launch to talk about this idea I have that, in fact, once you accept a such an unpopular identity, and you know that that's who you are. For me, um, it's been easier to kind of uh, be honest about the decisions I make and who I am and what I really want in my life. Yeah. And I wondered if that resonated for you. Yeah, it definitely resonates with me. I think that, um, you know, as I was explaining earlier, I was so in the closet until I was like 20 years old that I had to do, you know, it was like the, 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 the attractions came crashing in. Like, right. I was like, had this idea of who I was. And then all of a sudden it was like, oh my God, I'm really attracted to this man. And it was like, I had to like reckon with it and um, it, it required that I do a lot of self-searching and um, really uh, spend a lot of time um, focusing on myself, but also uh, elders before me that had gone through um, harder times than I had to really um, understand what my path was. So I think, you know, when you come out and you're, um, you know, and it's a challenging thing to do depending on where you live or your culture you're from or your religion that you do um, create a, a level of 
uh, emotional awareness um, and you are more conscious in your decisions um, and how you want to lead your life. So I, I think in some ways, um, well, at the time it didn't feel like a blessing in many ways. I view it sure. as a blessing today because it's really, you know, it really jolts you into like, okay, so I have all of these decisions I need to make and what do I really want? And, um, and then you go about making those decisions, um, even when they're unpopular. I, I feel as if this whole show that I do is about just that, that hard times are hard times. They don't feel like blessings when you're in them generally, yeah, No. but you can later see what came out of it. So what came out of it for you, of course, was eventually finding the person that you wanted to spend your life with and then um, approaching the subject of having children, claiming that back in a way. Yes. Yes. Um, and uh, certainly that's not that easy a road either for us. You know, it requires a lot. And for you, um, I appreciated that you were very, very uh, detailed about the ups and downs of becoming parents for you and your husband. Yeah. Um, you know, in a sense, parenting is like that, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, <laughs> it's completely unpredictable, but um, but there's something about um, having to be so so conscious. Um, my oldest child a few years ago was talking. I don't even remember what brought it up, but she said, "You know what? I had an advantage over the other kids." And I said, "You did? What was the advantage?" And she said, "I never doubted that I was wanted." Yeah, <laughs> you yeah. know, yeah, and because obviously. It, we have to, um, most of us have to work pretty hard to be parents if we're already out at the time. Yes. So can you talk some about your two children and the, and the road to them yeah. coming to you? Being yeah. You? Yeah. I mean, um, so I, I, part of the reason I wrote the book was for, you know, um, and I said in the beginning, but people who dream about becoming a parent, it's like it's uh, gay people that dream about it or people that in, uh, experience infertility issues. It is a road. It is a, it is a, um, it is a challenge. Um, it was for us, um, you know, uh, my husband and I, you know, we had, um, we had challenges in our life, but we were both very um, persistent at ob uh, obtaining our goals and we generally, you know, in our work life and um, in other areas, he's he's a he was a dancer, and um, you know, I did sports, and we, we we put our head down, we got things done. When it came to becoming parents, it was it was completely different because it was really very little was in our control, and um, we had to let go, and that was that was hard. That was hard for us. So for our daughter. Um, we um, waited for two, over two years for her to come into our lives. We started in uh, 2010. We um, went with a private adoption agency in the Bay Area. And um, we had 14 contacts with 14 different women over the span of two years. Um, and that was uh, really, really challenging. Um, the, 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 there is no, um, I think there's a stereotype about the women that, um, 
place their children for adoption. And those stereotypes based on our experience are completely inaccurate. We had, we had um, such varied contact from women with very, very different life experiences, all trying to make the most difficult decision of their life. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were, you know, when we would get involved in that process with them, we would, um, we would be on that journey with them. And in some cases, you know, we would get contacted um, by a birth mother and it would last for, you know, a week to two weeks. In other cases, it would last for, you know, up to six weeks. And we would be in contact with them uh, as they were building a relationship with us, building a, a trusting relationship with us in order to, to make this decision. So it was challenging. Um, we had, a, a, I'll just give you a couple of a brief examples, but early on we had um, a woman who was 16 or 17 years old that reached out to us from Arizona. She was from a, a large, large Mormon family. Um, she was having, um, she was in a relationship, a, a, you know, a relationship that she was concealing from her family with a, um, a Mexican-American boy. And she became pregnant and she wanted to make, she wanted to place her child for adoption. Um, she had nine siblings and I think there was um, potentially two mothers, like it was a polygamous household. Mm. That was one example of, and she was a lovely young woman who was very bright and was trying to make the decision on her own. And we had contact with her for, you know, two or three weeks and then we never heard from her again. And on the other end of the spectrum, this happened probably about a year in. We had a con- contact from a, a grandmother in Florida who was um, 49 years old, had five children, three grandchildren, sort of had a first marriage, so older children, and then a second marriage with young children. And this woman was estranged from her husband, and she had an affair with a gardener who was like 22 years old, and she was pregnant. And she reached out to us and she was like, I do not know how I'm going to raise another child. I mean, it was, it was, you know, very different circumstances. Um, and just, you know, uh, we were just so um, drawn into the decision they were ma- making and how important that was and um, their process that they went through. So it was, but over time, if you can imagine 14 different people reaching out over time, that was very, you know, with each, each person that reached out, um, there was hope that our, you know, our daughter was on the end of that relationship. And, and um, it was, it was very, uh, it was, you know, by the end of the road, we were quite exhausted and really quite cynical that it would happen. Well, and there's so much pressure, uh, maybe some internal pressure um t- to kind of be if you're if you already consider yourself to maybe have a mark against you yeah uh, you know as two gay men yeah. uh trying to adopt a child then how do you be the perfect interview interviewee as a potential yeah. you know parent that extra little bit of pressure i yeah. could imagine really churns around too yeah, you know, or you bring a lot up, of pressure even. Yeah, I think you bring up a good point. Um, yeah, it, it was definitely we we put a lot of pressure on ourselves. Um, but it, you know, in, in reality, the thing is, is that 
you know, um, it's very hard to plan a life when you are at the beck and call of people like, you know, from a work or vacation perspective, or just like, you know, really like simple things like having a child is a life altering, you know, uh, thing, right? Like, like it's yeah. a big deal. And so I think that was the other part of it that was actually quite real was the fact that we would sit there and go, are we going to go on vacation? <laughs> and then we would look at where are we going to go on vacation? And we'd look at, oh, let's go, you know, let's leave the country. And then we were like, but what if we get a phone call mm. and there's a baby at a hospital and that's our child. So that was real job promotions, job changes, like starting a new job and then two weeks in saying, oh, I just got a call and I need to leave work for the next, you know, two months. We, so we held off on a lot of things where we were waiting because just logistically, like raising a child in the, the, that early time is, you know, there's a lot to it, right? <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. And then there's just the, um, the confusions of the adoptive world. I'd love for you to, to um, read about that one experience that, which I think is sort of, you know, the scamming experience, which is not that uncommon. Yeah. Both uh, people scamming financially, uh, you know, and in, in other ways as well. And yeah. that adds another, because you're trying to build a trusting relationship in a situation where you actually can't trust. Yeah. You don't have a reason to trust, right? <laughs> yeah. But the thing is, is that you, you really have to trust in order to build that open relationship. So it's really, you, you got to go all it's, in. It's a paradox, isn't it's it? Totally, total yeah. paradox. So um, I'll share with you um, just a small part of this uh, uh, chapter, but it's uh, chapter 12. It's titled Being Scammed. Um, we went, um, and I'm not going to read all of it, but we were contacted by a woman and had a very intense interaction with her for over 48 hours. Um, on Monday morning, I arrived in the office and sat in my queue. All of a sudden, a long text message popped up from Michaela. In her message, there was an image of a cross and crazy talk about God and salvation. It contained language about the evils of abortion and homosexuality. I gasped, what the hell was going on? I immediate, immediately called my husband, Lorvik, and told him about the text. He was relieved. He said we couldn't have managed that intensity. Then we called Annie at our adoption agency and, asked, and she asked us for the phone number. She informed me that this woman was a fraud and that she was not pregnant. It turned out that she was scamming us for attention, what they call an emotional scam. She lived in Pennsylvania and does this frequently. Since she never asked for money, she isn't breaking any laws. The agency warned us, warned us that this could happen, but it was incredibly rare. We later learned that people do this with adoptions and missing people. These deranged people know you are vulnerable and desperate for something they might have. So they draw you into an interaction where they become the center and the keys to your dreams. Michaela had sucked the innocence of our hopes and dreams out of us and made this adoption process a nightmare. This interaction was devastating and we felt violated. We didn't know quite what to do next. You know that, uh, I, I don't know 
if this is the way it is for everybody, but when I was trying to have a child, I did give birth to my first child. And um, I I felt like a crazy person, Um, (laughs) which isn't typical of me, but I, I was obsessive. You know, I was, um, I, I was uh, driven, you know, I, you know, there is all of this um, almost felt like hormonal, but not necessarily female, just hormonal type of energy. Yeah. And I, I thought maybe I picked up on a little of that kind of energy with, with you, like you would keep talking to someone who was off the rails just because they might have a baby. Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, it's, it's, it's funny. Um, it's a really good point. Um, you know, writing a, writing a book about your life really, um, really gets you to think about things that you hadn't really thought about before. When I sat down and wrote the book, I had, I got so many lessons about myself about writing this book. Mm. Like I was like, I wrote all of these stories from all these different periods in my life and didn't realize that I had an anxiety disorder, right? <laughs> Until I actually sat and reread. That did, that did kind of stand out. <laughs> it was like, the, but you know. Fear, what, fear's your top layer for sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But it's like, it, it's really interesting when you're in the midst of it and you don't, you know, you don't, you know, and in our society, you know, fear, fear, fear and anxiety they drive us to accomplish things, right? Like they drive us to overcome. And I had, I think a lot of that that I had had led me to success in certain areas of my life. And so it was like sort of, you know, okay, yeah, there's fear there, but it, 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 and there's anxiety there, but it, but actually sitting down and writing it at the time I wrote it, it wasn't even aware of it. It was when I started editing it, editing editing the Uh book that I was like, whoa, whoa. And but that's it, that's interesting too. Like we're in the time of COVID. We're we're both sheltering in place, right? Yeah, yeah. And and people have been contacting me as a therapist and saying, I'm I'm really anxious. I've got to do something yeah. about this anxiety. And I'm saying, actually, anxiety is purposeful. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know. And so, yes, that was your first layer. But there were also reasons to be afraid, weren't there? Yeah, oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, and so it's yeah. a, it's a, it's yeah. a. How do you, how do you support yourself in that to not yeah. stay in that, you know, hyper state? Yeah. But um, when we come back, there, there's a little more to talk about in terms of your son and the difficulty of that. But yeah. I also want to talk about parenting. You know, the the wonder at the end of all that, because um, you did, in fact, create your family and you really are raising children. Want to get to that, too. So we'll come back to that after the break. Yeah, cool. Great. And listeners, you you can go to my Good Grief host page. You can go to my website, weatheringgrief.com, to find me and to find Steve Disselhorst. You can go to S-T-E-V-E-D-I-S-S-E-L-H-O-R-S-T.com. Be back soon. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Healthcare has been a major part of news stories today with one thing that has been consistent 
inconsistency. Both healthcare providers and patients have to work around and get used to a constantly changing set of rules and issues. Nurses have historically been left out of this decision-making. Listen to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing with host Leanne Meyer. Health professionals, we invite you to share your ideas and experiences while listening to experts in various areas of nursing. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health & Wellness. Over 20 million people in America struggle with substance use. This impacts both the people who are using and loved ones who are trying to help. Still, there is hope. Tune in to the Beyond Addiction Show with host Josh King. You'll hear from experts and get the real information you need to understand and assist in change. Change can be hard. It doesn't have to be confusing. Tune in every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. I'm here with Steve Disselhorst talking about his book, Determined to Be a Dad. To be, to be dad, excuse me, no A. <laughs> and um, Steve, we're, we're kind of at the end yep. almost of your daughter's story, yep. which has such a beautiful and happy ending um, yep. from my view. Um, it's, it's kind of wonderful when something feels right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. After all that feeling wrong stuff, right? Yeah, I mean, and it's, you know, we were in it for two years and we, um, we just, you know, we just got so hopeless towards the end. And then finally, when we got, you know, um, the day after Easter in 2012, our adoption agency called and said, we have a family in LA and they're, um, they're really interested in talking to you. It was, um, almost from the first conversation, there was just a connection. Um, and it was, uh, there, there, there were, you know, there were definitely moments in there that it was scary, but, um, you know, it was, uh, the, the connection was very profound, um, continues to be profound to this day. Um, and yeah, just a really, you know, for a first child, like just a really beautiful, um, experience and she's my daughter is just turned eight and she's thriving and she's um you know she's like you know the both of our kids are obviously <laughs> the loves of our lives the center of our world right um is any mm-hmm, for her, sure knows, so that doesn't change but the you yeah. know the amount you have to do every day changes yeah yeah <laughs> yeah. yeah they're 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 great so and so then you chose though to take a very different route with your son yeah and um uh Fost adopt, which is is complicated. I guess to to short track it, I would I would say um, you got prepared a little bit for having to surrender to the unknown with your daughter. Yeah. But in the end, you made it happen, right? Yeah. And it it occurred to me with your son, you had to do a whole lot more learning to surrender. 
Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Right. I think, um, so, you know, for my husband and myself, we, you know, we didn't feel like we could go the foster adopt route for a first child that it would be too difficult if something were to, um, not, not uh, go well. So, um, the private adoption for our daughter, our private adoption agency, they said there was about a 5% reclaim rate where parents reclaim their children. But the foster adopt program, uh, this is, these are not national numbers and it's different by state and by agency, but it's much more like um, 10 to 25% of kids get um, returned to their biological families. So for our second adoption, we um, chose the route of foster to adopt. And I think, we were a little bit, we were naive. We were definitely naive. We had a, um, two uh, women, lesbian couple friends that lived in, live in Oakland. They had gotten two children through the foster adopt program um, through a local agency. And they had largely, um, one of them was like very easy, like from the beginning, the adoption was finalized, like within three to six months, very quickly. The second one was more difficult, but um it's funny when they didn't either they didn't share as much about their difficulties or we didn't hear as much. It's not really clear to me. Still. <laughs> um, Everyone can tell you parenting is hard, but, uh, or, you know, fast adopt is hard, but experience is different from hearing, isn't it? Yeah. 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 And I think <laughs> that, um, yeah, that was very, and then also the agency we worked with, they, you know, they, they, you obviously you sign a contract. They said there's this issue, but it was very upbeat around like, oh, you know, very few of these kids will be, you know, returned to their biological family or something we heard over and over and over. Um, and yet, um, so for our son, we got contacted um, and uh, we're told that, you know, the birth parents were not in the picture that while parental rights hadn't been terminated, that, um, it would likely be administrative and that things would move along very quickly and smoothly. And then within two days of him arriving in our home, his birth mother um, returned um, from being gone for a long time and um, she wanted to get him back. And that's when our journey uh, with her and with our son really um, started. And it was a challenging road for about a year and a half. You know, my, my youngest child, I was her guardian until she mm. was seven, mm. at which point uh, my wife and I adopted her. Yeah. And one thing that stood out with me was, um, of course, there's an uncertain aspect to being a parent to anyone. Yeah. <laughs> but that's a different type of uncertain. Yes. Um, and... Uh, I really resonated with this sort of um, living a little bit on the edge. Yeah. Um, and you had a more dramatic, um, after about a year, uh, my youngest child's um, birth mom totally disappeared. Yeah. Um, and uh eventually we had to get someone else to make contact with her to sign off. Yeah. Uh, but that doesn't mean she was absent yeah. Yeah. <laughs> in our, in our thinking. And so to, to be interacting with someone that, you know, is trying to reunify yeah. while still loving and raising a baby, it seemed like a huge turning point to me 
when uh, at some point in the book you said something like, um, whatever, whatever it happened, you just wanted it to be the best for your child. Yeah, yeah. That you had I, to get to that point. Yeah, yeah. So it was, um, yeah, I, I write about it a little in the book, but I, I, I don't think I'm very good at describing it. But when you're in this precarious situation um, with custody and the potential your child is going to go back to their biological family or your foster child at that time, he was our foster child. You, you try to remember everything about them. Like it would, you would be changing them and they would, you know, he would have this beautiful smile to do this silly thing. And you would try to be like, okay, I need to remember this moment. Cause if he's gone, I want to have this beautiful memory of him. Um, and that was, uh, that was really, um, that was really something, right? Like, um, living in two, two yeah, places at once yeah and then at, at a certain point when things looked really scary i did some visioning work around um you know at the time our son was a year or a year and a half old i did some visioning work saying to myself um okay if he is returned to his biological mother um that i have to think of him as a 17 year old boy like getting ready for a senior year of high school and being really successful and being ready to go off to college and that that one year he spent with us had made all the difference in the world mm. and it was in that fantasy of him not being with us that i could get over myself and could be like this isn't about the pain that it's causing us or me it's about what's best for him and the time that we have with people in our lives, that time is never taken away. So with your, with your kids that are in foster program or you, you're giving love to them over and over and over and they carry those lessons with them forever, even if they're not and with it, you, right? It makes such a difference uh, yeah. I know, from working with adults. If you have yeah. a bad situation, yeah. but somebody loved you. Yeah, you do yeah. much better. Yeah. I, I can't help but think of another guest. Uh, his name is Kevin Fisher Paulson, yeah. and he's also a gay man who adopted triplets. Yeah, and they were very, very sick, and um, they he and his husband nursed them back to health for a year. Yeah, and then they were removed uh, by a homophobic social worker. Yeah. Yeah. And that's you know, real. And that's and real. Right yeah. Now. It's real for sure. There's, it's, there's not a unanimity. It's better in the Bay area, of course, than some yeah. other places, but um, that same thing I was thinking, okay, those kids got healthy with them. Yes. Yes. Um, yeah. Terrible and grievous and mournful. Yes. yes. But that's what happened in their three little lives. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they yeah. were loved and they got healthy and, Hopefully that um, whatever situation was next. Yeah, and, well. and, the, and, the, and your show here, like the, this is a national program. So I think it's really important because that, that reality is out there. There, there. there is, you know, currently with the Trump administration pulling back ruling on, you know, um, na uh, federal guidelines around uh, um, uh, religious freedom. And now it's going down to the state level and, there are states that are saying, you know, agencies can deny LGBTQ people from adopting. It's happening. It's real. It, 
right now. It's, ter- it's terrible. And it was happening casually before that. It was. It was. Uh, and the, the sad thing about it is that the number is like seven to one, the number of LGBTQ people that adopt out of the foster system than heterosexual. So they're trying to hurt LGBTQ people, but they're, what, who they're really hurting are the children. Because are the, the children. Right. The children are the ones that were being adopted by queer families getting out of the system now seven you know seven times the the, the number is that, that aren't going to be eligible depending on the state obviously there's yeah, a lot of obviously states are, but, but the, it, i think that's a very good point um you know we parent because we feel a drive to parent yes and also our families have um fostered many kids that other people didn't want that's that's exactly right. And um, so then those kids do not have loving families. They don't yep. get nourished. Yep. Potentially, they grow up in, you know, foster homes. Uh, I mean, um, group homes and that yep. sort of thing. Um, it's it's pretty unconscionable, but yes. I, I agree with you. Yep. But since we only have a couple of minutes yep. left, we have to end on parenting is an incredible learning Yes. Once you, you know, I, I feel as if as soon as you decide to have a child, you're pregnant. Um, so you had a very long pregnancy. Yes. <laughs> but then parenting sort of, um, I'm sure you revisited, but uh, parenting is a whole different universe, isn't it? It uh, is. It yeah, is. Yeah, yeah. I, I would say that for us, like we started in 2010 and our, with our daughter and our son's adoption finalized in September of 2017. So it took us almost eight years almost to create our years. family. That is, and that is a long period of time. That's right. So, and uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to cut it off there because we're running out of time. Okay, sure. But um, I know you're a happy parent. So I, we're I telling days. people what to be kind of prepared for. But we're both glad we did it. <laughs> yes, yes. Shelter in place parenting Thanks. is very yes, different. Yes, very different indeed. That's a whole other show. <laughs> you can find Steve at stevedisselhorse.com. Next week, I'll welcome back Marie Matsuki Maket. She first came on the show to talk about her book, Where the Dead Paws and the Japanese Say Goodbye, a really beautiful book. She'll be joining me to talk about her new book, American Harvest, God, Country, and Farming in the Heartland. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.